Asian Pop Nation on Sin 90.7. And guess who's back? Back again. It's your EP. Senya here to MC your night here at Asian Pop Nation on Sin with Ben, Aaron, and JP to join me later on this evening. We've got awesome discussions lined up for another awesome show. We'll be talking about Raya and the Last Dragon, the latest Disney film inspired by Southeast Asian cultures. We're also going to be talking about Avatar Studios and Earth Hour, which is coming up this Saturday. And we also wanted to wish you a happy Harmony Week last week. It's a week all dedicated to celebrating inclusiveness, respect, and a sense of belonging for everyone in multicultural Australia. And the multiculturalism continues this week in Victoria with Cultural Diversity Week. So we're going to give you amazing discussions from around the Asia region, so stay tuned. We've also got some interviews commemorating some of our diverse artists here in Australia. We've got Oshawa coming up and also Lalka here to talk about their upcoming singles and EPs. So stay tuned. We're going to go back into the music with a new song by Sri Lankan and Australian artist Embers called Now, which he says is about the post-heartbreak stage when you've made it out of the storm and are finally seeing things clearly. So thanks so much for sending this through, Embers. We're so happy to be able to play this here on Asian Pop Nation on Sin 90.7. And the last song you just heard was by Vava featuring Jackson Wang called So Bad. And that's not necessarily a reflection of what we thought about this upcoming discussion. But let's hear what Ben, JP and myself had to say about a recent Disney film. Take it away. Long ago, in the fantasy world of Kumandra, humans and dragons lived together in harmony. But when a sinister monster known as the Druin threatened the land, the dragons sacrificed themselves to save humanity. And now 500 years later, the same Druin have returned and it's up to a lone warrior called Raya to track down the last dragon and stop the Druin for good. And this is how Disney's latest princess film, Raya and the Last Dragon, begins. And we were lucky enough, JP, myself, Senya, and Ben, to co-see the film. First things first, what did people think initially? Or what were your expectations going into the film? And were they met when you came out? I expected it to look cool going in. Yeah. And it came out, yeah, it looked cool. Nice. (laughs) Good job, Disney. (laughs) Yeah. Disney always delivers on their animation. I think each film, they really top it up each time. It's makes oh, it more yeah. fluid or a bit more complicated and complex and it really shows. But Ben, what did you think? Yeah, I had a lot of fun watching it. As um, you'd know from like having watched it with me, I like the environments and it, it reminded me of like the open world games like Breath of the Wild and Genshin Impact. And I guess like probably kind of like this is like Dark Souls 2, even though I didn't play Dark Souls. Yeah, for sure. And then, really um, fantastical setting. And in the beginning, I was like being like really jokey in the cinema because like the cinema didn't have that many people. So I could just kind of like, like say jokey stuff. Like, But then like towards the later half of the movie, I became more like emotionally invested in, and quieted down, down in my seat. So I'm... Yeah, that's how they get. Yeah, that's when all the emotional stuff hits in. Yeah, I had a fun time watching it. Why did we watch it, Xenia? What made this movie so unique unique enough to feature on a great show like Asian Pop Nation? Well, the reason why we were able to receive tickets or I thought it was appropriate for Asian Pop Nation was because it was meant to be a showcase of Southeast Asian culture. Mm. And we could see that through the inspiration that Ben noticed, of course, in the world we've seen 
settings like in the film, Raya, the main character, comes from the part of Commander called Heart and they have this fantastical rocks that emerge in the ocean, including this one that looks like an arch. Mm-hmm. And that's meant to be inspiration from Vietnam, where there are some amazing natural wonders that look quite similar. And also to Guilin, which is a area in southern China where they have a natural wonder that looks quite similar to that as well. So we see a lot of it as well from the martial arts, from the various settings of Kamadra. But I think one of the issues that a lot of people have noticed with the film is that it tends to generalise Southeast Asia or tends to not give it the representation it should deserve. Because when you make a film that is a combination of the aspects of so many diverse cultures, there are so many countries and communities within Southeast Asia, you tend to just cherry pick the ones that you think are cool. And it almost makes, just continues to otherize the Southeast Asian community rather than make them feel like this is an inclusive film about them. Unlike Moana, where it's explicitly part of their culture, this mm-hmm. is, is a story, this is part of the way that they travel and to islands and even the music had that kind of cultural theme. This one, aside from the settings, maybe aside from yeah, it's, some it's, of the a, music. it's a wide brush, yeah. Yeah, I think you sort of start to lose quite a bit of what you maybe your intentions were by trying to paint with the wide brush, as you said, rather than actually maybe choosing a culture or choosing a story that w- exists within these cultures and making that part of the story rather than taking what you want. But I think overall the film was a good or an enjoyable watch. I think it's not the best Disney princess film or Disney film, I think. I personally feel like their films have slowly detracted in story, not necessarily animation or music, but in their narrative storytelling or in their characters since Tangled. I think Tangled was the last oh, one wow. and then everything kind of distracted. I don't really have strong feelings towards Frozen and I know many people love it. It's not something will, that resonated with me. I will me. bring up one. Yeah. I will bring up like one one thing that I haven't seen like watched through all of like Avatar The Last Airbender like from start to end but even from like what little I know about it like the film reminded me a lot of that series has anyone else like watched through the whole thing and can they confirm if it's i've watched the whole thing and i think they did something quite similar where they took elements of various asian or indigenous cultures into the story but the way that they did it differently was that it really plays a huge part in the characters motivations and drive and their values whereas in Raya, it's like you mentioned, but it's kind of like world building. It's open world adventure, but it's nothing about the culture really drives them. So would you say it's purely aesthetic? I think so, almost. Like with Avatar The Last Airbender, even the elements of the different nations, they all took elements of different uh, martial arts, of different belief systems. Like, for example, the air temples where Aang is from has roots in you know monasteries and in the beliefs of buddhism and hinduism which i think that really drove 
the values of Aang. But with Raya, it was very much the setting didn't really play much into the character's journey except, oh, she has to travel on different sections of the dragon rather than... There were some semblances of an attempt at that. Because, yeah. yeah, the whole thing was that she was traveling from nation to nation, right? And they had their own, I guess, distinct culture. But would you say they didn't push far enough? I think so. Like with, for example, if you take Disney films like Moana and Black Panther, where you've got, like, their cultures are imbued in their traditions, in their actions. But with with Raya, it's the aesthetics is like this nice, you know, animation and martial arts, nice settings. But Raya, you could put her in another setting, in another culture, and she probably would have still had the same drives. Whereas in Moana, a lot of what she was driven by was part of her the cultures of, you know, Polynesian cultures. But here, I guess Raya's ambitions weren't really necessarily driven by her culture, but just like that idea of, of duty, which we find in every film <laughs> ever. It's like a, it's like a universal, it's a universal thing. Yeah, and I think that's sort of what they're trying here is that they wanted to make it universal, but with by making it universal, you're not making anything unique, mm. <laughs> you know? Like, it's important to have a for a story to have universal themes, but you want them to portray it in a different way to others, right? So I think with Raya, you know, being sort of generalizing Southeast Asian cu- cultures and making Raya, you know, a strong female protagonist, but still... I just feel like duty is something that happens too much in Asian-centric films. <laughs> I just want a story where maybe there's a bit more to explore. But there were definitely emotional moments in this. I absolutely loved the kind of connections between dragons and the communities and cultures. That was the one thing that really united all of them was that their love and appreciation and gratitude towards the dragons. I guess a good film it's definitely cool, not a bad addition. Cool and I think Raya is absolutely amazing character. She definitely had a, a bit more agency than kind of Elsa did. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Where Elsa felt, I guess, felt like she was running away from her problems, whereas Raya was really trying to fix them, amend them. But it seems to me fundamentally, it's still quite like at its roots, a Western story. Yeah, I think like so. That, that like age, that age-old formula of like you have a broken world and a hero goes out to restore it in some way or another. In this film, they had like the heart of a dragon, and she mm-hmm. had to go from nation to nation to find the pieces put together. Like that's so ancient. That's a really old, ancient, like Western story. Yeah, yeah. And I think if we compare it to like Avatar, which I guess it has similar properties, it's like you have to learn mm-hmm. all the elements in order to fight. I think it's just more that there was a lot maybe more time and more development to because yeah, sure. we could sort of see that band coming together right in the film uh. but we never really got enough time to care about them except that oh they all lost something because of the drone yeah um, you know going through the whole film i was getting really big lord of the rings vibes yeah yeah lord of the rings like this is really big grand journey i think this story would work really well as a show or at least mm. like a series of films, but like as a single film, which was around what an hour and a half, an hour and a half to yeah, hour. almost two hours. Yeah, yeah, it's um not enough time, not enough time to make something that grand. They did really cram a lot, didn't they? They had yeah, yeah. the exposition, like what happened at the beginning, but then they also yeah, the kind whole of explored world how it broke again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
It's like they were unified, then they broke, and they tried to unify, then they broke, and then they're going to try and unify again. Yeah, that's, a, that's a lot of lore. Exactly. I yeah. feel like maybe if they had used that time instead to explore one section uh-huh. of that journey, maybe of the original, originally what happened with the dragons or just the beginning rather than having to, uh, I don't know, it's kind of hard because then it, that way yeah. still leaving out such a vital part of the story. And I yeah, like- you see, like as just just in its scope, it's so big. Yeah. It's, it's really, it was really ambitious. Mm. And I feel like you didn't that feel way. that sense of struggle. Like it's almost as if she could travel from Commander at one end yeah, to yeah, the yeah. other in a day. It's like <laughs> no, I almost think they should have made a movie for each country. Mm. Yeah, like if they did it that way, I guess it would let them really dig deep into the mm. whole cultural thing. Like the thing you were talking about earlier, right? Like deriving more, making more use of the culture in yeah. terms of like the storytelling. Yeah. I think the settings also could have been explored a lot more because uh-huh. I'm sure each area of the dragon, each area of Commander has their own culture, has their own beliefs. Uh-huh. I think if they had more time to explore that, that would have given it a much more distinct connection to the setting rather than it being like, this place is snowy, this place is uh-huh. a yeah, desert, yeah. this place is like a water town. It's just, you know, uh-huh. it's all aesthetic but no substance, I'd say. <laughs> But if you've seen Ryan the Last Dragon, I know we're kind of late onto the discussion. It's been out for a while now. And I think I've been talking to people quite a bit and they've said, oh, I forgot that movie came out. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've seen it and want to share your thoughts, let us know here at Asian Pop Nation. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Asian Pop Nation. Now it's time for an interview with Australian hip-hop R&B and indie artist Oshawa here to share a little bit about his process when creating songs and also about his latest single Midnight Lows which we played a few shows back but we're really excited to talk to him tonight so let's give it up for Oshawa. Hi Oshawa, thanks so much for joining us here on Asian Pop Nation. How are you? Good thanks, thanks for having me. How are you? Not too bad, it's great to have you on the show. So I noticed that you only started creating music last year. Is that right? Yeah. um, So I picked up FL Studio in May and then had my first release in middle of June. Yeah, last year. That's quite quick. What sort of drew you to creating music during that time? (laughs) Um, Honestly, I think it was mostly like quarantine boredom. So one of my mates... Uh, he was like fiddling around on Ableton. He's been producing for like two years now, maybe like just on and off. And we went on like a trip to his house down southwestern Australia. And he brought like his laptop and he had Ableton on there. And like as a as a joke, he was like, oh, like, let's let's make a song. So we downloaded like a random beat off YouTube, recorded whatever that was. Like, it was just a really bad verse or whatever or a hook. I don't really remember. And then we got back to Perth and yeah, I'd, I haven't really had any musical experience like prior to that like i mean i tried like singing like oh you know i dropped it after like a month i tried picking up drums and i dropped that after like a couple of months as well like i didn't really have any musical theory or any of that but i had friends that were really i guess in into their music one of them was like self-taught like piano guitar drums and the other was just like he was literally studying like music specials um at uni i was just constantly like spamming them with questions and trying to figure stuff out and then yeah, I think the internet as well really helped with that. So I joined like a bunch of communities straight off the bat. I just started asking questions to like pretty much everyone and anyone. Like, how do I do this? Like, what is this? And 
yeah, I just started started from there pretty much. So what is it about using this platform that is, I guess, different to learning an instrument? What is it that drew you in and made you interested for longer as opposed to back at school learning drums? Um, well, honestly, I feel like it's because people on the internet or people in the communities that I was in, they all have such different skill sets. Like one day I might be talking to someone who plays drums and only produces drum breaks. And one day I'll be talking to someone who raps or then someone who sings. Whereas like, I feel like at school, it's like you choose what instrument you want to learn and that's what you do kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, for example, my mate who, who self-taught himself everything, it's, it's people like that where I feel like I learn the most from. It's like they're not like technically sound, but because I've self-taught everything and they've learned everything, I guess, from other people, not the traditional way, they just have to know what sounds good and what doesn't. And I feel like that's like really important for me when I make music. And that's what I got from those communities as well. And how were these communities, how did they help you sort of make Midnight Lows? So long story about Midnight Lows. First off, I met the producer. I found his beats on YouTube. He has like a pretty good following, but like, in my opinion, he should be a lot bigger. I was like, I really love your beats and I'd love to use this one, blah, blah. And on the other hand, I've also been working with my mate Roxy, who I met from one of the discords I'm in. He's been working with me since, since May. So he's the reason I started releasing music pretty much. He was like, you got to release this. You got to put this out, blah, blah, blah. And he now like mixes my tracks for me. I have some input, but he's, he's the one doing it. So having that connection with him and then just being able to reach out to someone online randomly and be like, hey, can we work? Like that's, that's how Midnight Low started. Yeah, I found the producer on YouTube. I've been working with the mixing engineer since May. And it was just a matter of getting the beat, actually the instrumental, working out melodies, writing to it, recording it, getting it mixed, and then, yeah, getting it mastered. Yeah, and where do you typically sort of draw inspiration for your music? What Was it maybe that inspired Midnight Lows in particular? Midnight Lows in particular, the inspiration came, I was at like a Sunday night with some mates, and it got to like 11pm, which wasn't like too late. I was like, oh, like I kind of just want to go home for some reason, so I caught like a single Uber home. It was a really good night and I was like having a really good time. And then as soon as I left my mates and I was alone, I was like, man, like I'm feeling not sad, but like I want to go back and like hang out. But obviously you can't hang out for like the entire night because you have stuff to do and you have to sleep. Blah, blah. I wondered like what this like feeling was. Like I didn't really know how to describe it. I was like, yeah, it's not like a sadness, but it's kind of like a, like a middle ground. It was pretty much 12 a.m. And I was like, oh, I'll make a song about it. And then yeah, I wrote a song about midnight lows. So yeah, as with other music though, I always look at like my bedroom as inspiration. Like not what's in the bedroom, just the concept of my bedroom. Because I started off making lo-fi hip-hop and lo-fi music. And that's all very bedroom associated, like sounds and I guess, yeah, music people would listen to by themselves in their bedroom. So I always look at that first. Like I try and make songs that people would want to listen to alone, not necessarily in a car or in a group. That's how I listen to the majority of my music in my room. <laughs> So is it mainly what you associate with the bedroom that kind of inspires? Very much so, because from the bedroom concept, there's sad, there's chill, there's happy, there's content. You can talk about the weather. There's yeah. I feel like like my first song I released was called Four Walls, and it was literally about like quarantine, pretty much. I feel like a lot of concepts that apply to me stem from my bedroom. So yeah, I try and keep it contained in that. And how did you know that feeling you were having in the Uber is called a midnight low? 
So when I got home, first off, I was in the mood to make music because I didn't want to sleep and I had nothing else to do. So I was like, oh, this is still in summer. So yeah, I literally had nothing to do. All my mates were still out, so couldn't talk to them online or whatever. Yeah, I started looking at beats on YouTube and I still had that like middle ground sand feeling like, oh, like I want to be with my mates, but I can't kind of thing. Not a big deal, blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah, I found the producer for Midnight Lows and I found his instrumental. And I was like, I just started humming to it straight away. I really like how this sounds. And then I just started writing and Midnight Lows is just what happened to rhyme. <laughs> that's, that's, that's literally how that lyric came to be was it's what rhymed. So that's what's mm. And you mentioned a little bit about bedroom music and lo- lo-fi. Did you know that that was kind of the genre you wanted to lean towards? How did your music taste kind of come to that? So the first, very first few songs, I wouldn't really call them songs. They were like yeah, one minute pieces of me just like singing or rapping a verse or a hook or something. They weren't by any means in the lo-fi genre. They were like, I don't want to say generic, but that like commercial rap hip hop sound. And like, as I started, I guess, meeting more people, they were all like, you have a voice that doesn't have to be in that genre. Like, like you can make other genres, like other genres are on the internet, not just like hip hop and rap. And I started to realize that genre of music that I was initially making, one, I didn't like how it sounded. And two, it was really saturated. That being said, like there are a lot of good artists that, that come out of the genre from the internet that I met and that I've collabed with. But I think I slowly realized I don't have to be just in one genre. And I don't think anyone really has to be in one genre. And yeah, I met a lot of people that made lo-fi. I listened to a lot of lo-fi music myself. Usually they don't have vocals, the ones that I listen to. I listen to, yeah, lo-fi music without vocals because I feel like it's more chill. And I was like, oh, like this artist called Alfu. He was blowing up at the time as well from his TikTok song. I was talking to Roxy. I was like, oh, like what genre is that? I was like, oh, I'd call it like lo-fi hip hop. And I was like, oh, I really like that sound. And yeah, that's just those few songs that I was happy with to release um, were songs like that. Do you feel like you might be, I guess it's hard to anticipate, but would you imagine yourself changing genres again in the future? Or do you feel comfortable in lo-fi hip-hop? Definitely. So like with Midnight Lows, I personally consider it to be like an alt R&B hip-hop track. I've also released like an emo rap track, two lo-fi songs. I've released Waste My Time. I think that was also like kind of alt R&B, but also still lo-fi. And then a song I'm working on at the moment is blending R&B with kind of hyperpop. So yeah, definitely a lot of genre hopping, which I know like professional music people wouldn't like because it's easier to put artists into one genre because it's easier to market, promote, etc. But for me, like I'm just simply releasing what I like. There'll definitely be a lot of genre hopping and genre bending in the future. Yeah, looking forward to it. Going back to that idea of sort of writing and creating music in the bedroom, is there something that you feel you can't record or write songs without? It always has to be at some point, like after midnight. In, in During summer, like, and even now, I, I stay up pretty late most of the times because I want to stay up and I want to do things. So like I grew up my entire life staying up late, being a night owl, blah, blah, blah. And I'd always just waste my time on like YouTube videos or like TV shows, like anime or whatever, just like just consuming content basically. And as soon as I picked up music, that all changed. Like I just dropped everything, like gaming, I dropped TV shows, I dropped like everything. Instead, I just make music. Yeah, considering the way I've grown up, it's like, that's what I do now. Like after like 1am, I'll just be like looking through beat to listening to music or writing or recording something. But it always has to be my phone's away because no one's up at that time. I'm talking to people in America or in Argentina because of the time difference. 
me to even collab with people that I want to collab, I have to be up past 12, past one, just to talk to them and just to get feedback. And I guess, yeah, that's, that's definitely something that's consistent is it has to be late night. Otherwise, I'm not making any music. Do you think that sort of influences the kind of songs you would write? Say if you were to write in the day, would it sound different? Do you think? Def- definitely, yeah. So my issue is I've tried writing quote unquote happy songs or at least like upbeat songs and they always come out sad. Like no matter how hard I try, they always come out like I show my mates, I was like, oh, like, is this like an upbeat like song? And they're like, no, like this is depressing. Like, I, yeah, that's, that's the one thing is like, I, I've tried so hard to write happy songs, but for some reason, I, me personally, I can't associate that upbeat sound with 4am. Like, <laughs> um, and that's when I do most of my writing, I do most of my recording and my melodies. So it's like, yeah, I think <laughs> that's so that's so true. It's a good point. I think if I try to start and finish a song during the day, it'll sound completely different to the music that I normally make. This one's a bit of a different question, but I was going to talk about your cultural background. Does that yeah. sort of influence your songwriting in any way or does that have any role in your music? In the same way that I don't particularly want to fall into one genre, I don't want to particularly fall into one culture or background. For reference, my background is... I was born in Canada, so Mississauga, which is an hour or so away from Toronto. I grew up in South Africa, so I was living there for 12 years, from a baby to 12 years old. I moved to Australia in 2012 and spent my high school life here and my uni life here as well. But my ethnicity is Chinese, so <laughs> I don't look Canadian, I don't look South African, and I don't look... Well, actually, Australia's becoming a lot more mixed, and yeah, so yeah, maybe I do look Australian, I guess, but... Obviously, like while I've been in South Africa and while I've been in Australia, like I've grown to love the culture here and in South Africa. But like in the same way that, yeah, I don't want to stick to one genre. It's like I don't want to be like all for, you know, a single culture. Mm. I want to be able to appreciate all types of cultures. And yeah, that goes for like the music I listen to and the music I make. Yeah. Is there anything you wanted to experiment with or try in the future? I'm not sure if you're planning to dabble into mixing. Definitely. Yeah. So... Ever since I picked up music, I've been trying to learn to produce. I took a production unit at uni. It was like a broadening unit, so I had like capacity to actually take it, which is good. So I picked up like basic production from that. But I'm always trying to learn, I guess, more and more. But that being said, like when I'm making music, I'm usually recording and I'm usually mixing my vocals only and usually writing. So when there's time for production, hopefully like in the semester break or next summer i'm definitely going to keep learning production i don't feel like any of the things i've learned will you know be forgotten so mm-hmm. yeah production production is something that i really want to learn how to do to a high standard because i feel like if i have this for example i have this really good melody that i want to lay down and i can't find the instrumental that'll fit that melody it'd be so handy if i could just make the melody and make the production myself or produce the instrumental myself so yeah i'm definitely doubling down on recording and vocals but production is on the side and it is something that I'm interested in. Yeah. Can we perhaps expect maybe an upcoming, another EP perhaps? Or are you working towards releasing an album or EP? So with that, I, in the past week, I've actually deleted my EP simply because I don't, I didn't like like half the songs on it. Do you know how I was saying like all oh, the first like few songs that I made were like in the hip hop commercial rap genre or like very grounded like emo hip hop. That was on my old mic. That was when I first started songwriting, when I first started recording vocals and like listening back to it, it's like if I was a listener and I heard the quality of mixing and mastering 
on Midnight Lows. So we separate my vocals. We heard just that. And then I had just heard the first few songs I released. I'd be like, uh, like maybe I don't listen to this guy because, you know, that, that was literally my thinking. I was like, uh, I wouldn't listen to these songs now knowing that, knowing of what I've made recently. Mm. That being said, I think it's good to show growth, but like those were literally my first few songs that I recorded full stop. So yeah. I just feel like it was dumb of me to release those back then because it's like, you don't have to release everything you make whenever you make it. So yeah, in terms of an EP and a project, it sounds weird, but I've kind of set a goal. It's like if I break a million streams on Spotify, I'll start working on something bigger than a single. Mm. Up until then, I feel like knowing what I know now, releasing a single every two months or so or every month and a half is a lot more convenient and a lot more, what makes a lot more sense. It's easier to promote easier to market as an independent artist i think yeah singles are kind of the way to go up until you have a decent following so mm. yeah no that's fair fair call and i guess going to sort of your audience and listenership what impact do you kind of want your music to have on those who listen to it i often get messages from people or comments on youtube i'm being like oh like i, I love listening to this and i'd be like oh like where are you listening to and sure enough they're listening like in their bedroom or like with headphones on by themselves and it's like i don't i don't want to be that like emotional artist who's like here to save lives and all that it's just like if people can relate to my music like i relate to music when i listen to it alone in my bedroom then that's the impact i want to have because i get a lot of joy and a lot of fulfillment from listening to music by myself in my bedroom so mm-hmm. I feel like if I can give that to people, then I'm happy. Yeah. And for my last question, I guess for any people who want to listen to more of your music, where can they find you? Right. So on Spotify and all streaming platforms, my appearance name or artist name is Oshawa. An easier to remember it is I literally took my name, Joshua, and I just removed the J. So if you know a Josh, you know how to get to my name. My Instagram and Twitter handle and all of that is all at Oshawa and then ha, like laughing ha, H-A. So O-S-H-U-A, H-A. That's pretty much on every single social media platform. And just a quick question. This just came to mind. Why Oshawa? Why did you decide to take the J out? Um, so I had a bunch of like joke artist names that my mates and I came up with. Because when I started making music, it, it wasn't um, to release music. It was just like for fun, something that I was like, oh, well, like, if I'm not taking this seriously, like, why don't I just have a not-so-serious name? And I was like, it'd be the most uninventive thing to just take the J out of my name, and that's it. And so mm. that's just what I did. I just <laughs> took the J out. It's so, like, it's simple as that. So do you think you would change it if you sort of decided to go down a more serious route, or you just kind of... The thing is, I I feel like I am now a more serious route, and people, I feel like they they like it. Like, people say, like... People I haven't met before are calling me like Osh and Oshi and an Oshawa. And it's like, I kind of respond to it now. Like it's my name. So mm. no one's called me up on it being like, your name sucks or like whatever. So I honestly think I'm going to keep it. I don't, there's no other Oshawa really mm. on the internet, which is actually kind of insane to me. I was yeah. like, how, is, how has no one else thought to just take the J out of Josh? But <laughs> yeah, so I think I'll stick with it. Um, I'm pretty happy with it and it doesn't stray far at all from my own name. So, mm. yeah. Well, thanks so much, Oshawa, for sharing that with us and also taking the time to talk to us today. No, thank you. This has been so fun. Really happy. I'm really happy that um, I got the opportunity to be here. 
And the last song we hope you kick back to, haha, <laughs> get it? Because I'm talking about Wavy's Kick Back. And speaking of kicking back, something that happened last Friday was climate protests. And in light of environmental change, this Saturday is actually Earth Hour. So we are here to talk about that. But how does that tie with Asian culture? Well, you just got to find out here on Sin. On Saturday, March 27th, Earth Hour will be happening from 8.30 to 9.30 p.m. It's a worldwide movement organized by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, which encourages individuals, communities, and businesses to turn off non-essential electric lights for an hour as a symbol of commitment to the planet and the environment. So that begs the question, how long do you think you could last without electricity? Zanya, what do you think? Um, that's hard because I love reading. Oh. So if there was no electricity, I would read, but then what could you read with if it's at night? Hey, so... you know, candles are a thing, right? That's true. Yeah. But I feel like candles and books are a scary mix. Um, but yeah, that's a good point. I might go yeah. the old-fashioned way. Yeah, have like a, a lantern. Oh yeah, that's right. One of those um, you know, those gas-powered lanterns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not gas, oil. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But I wonder what else I would do. Everything requires light for me. So having a candle, mm. maybe I could do some cross-stitching. Maybe I could just do my homework. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like um, just exercises from my Japanese or Chinese workbook. I think that would be a good way of avoiding distractions. Oh. But as for like how long I could last, I don't think it'll be very long considering how much I rely on my computer to communicate with people oh, yeah. or electronics to communicate with people and also to do. Yeah, it send out like pigeons. Yeah, but it's also a good excuse to say, no, nah, I'm sorry I couldn't do it because <laughs> I had no electricity and my yeah, yeah. laptop and my phone has died. It's a good way of getting off the grid, I think. I would love to do that if having essential items like food wasn't a thing uh, or like earning money wasn't needed to gather food or to maybe what i need to do is actually like learn how to hunt this is just all like going backwards in how the hell are you <laughs> gonna hunt in the suburb though oh, i don't know you can get kangaroos at night in mm. endeavor hills so i could travel down but i might uh, need a car so I mean, you could eat ducks too yeah there's a pond near my house so i yeah, could yeah. eat the ducks well, maybe we have chickens yeah. Oh, chickens, all right. So <laughs> we're now just discussing how do we live off the grid? So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. isn't that what it is, living without electricity? Yeah, precisely. Yeah, how about you, Aaron? Do you think you could last long? And what would you do? I'll just go to sleep, that's it. What, all the, the whole time you have no electricity? What if you wake up and you still don't have electricity? Oh, I'll play the block. I'll just play Walk in the Dark if I have to. <laughs> Oh, I know that would be heaps of fun. What are, like games that you can play in the dark? Oh, yeah, scary, but yeah, it'd be a little bit fun. Who can summon their sleep paralysis demon first? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if I had, a but yeah, I'll probably just yeah. If I didn't have ability to sleep, I'll just probably just read a book. That's it. Hmm. I see. And streaming. Wait, man. Does playing music count as electricity? Music. Yeah. Um. Depends. If well, it's... I mean, yeah. Like if you're using a phone oh. to play music, yeah, that's electricity. If you're like playing on a violin, <laughs> oh, that works. And making your own music, maybe not, or singing a song to yourself, Aaron. Well, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. What about music boxes, eh? Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, music boxes. I just realized I couldn't read my manga if I <laughs> didn't oh, have yeah. electricity. Uh, they don't sell manga in this country. <laughs> at least not ones that are easily accessible. Yeah, for sure. But what about you, JP? Oh my goodness. If like here, I wouldn't be able to last two or three hours. So I do all my drawing digitally. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what is your life like without drawing? Yeah, what am I gonna do? I have to draw on paper of all things? My goodness. That's normal, I do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm I'm very advanced, Aaron. I'm I'm up here. <laughs> no, no, but I think it depends on context too, right? Like if I I'm living here, like in the suburbs of Australia. Everything relies on technology. I basically can't do anything if there's no electricity. So, like two, three hours, like eventually, I'm gonna need something. I'm gonna even need... starting up like a gas. Well, I guess it doesn't need electricity, but I thought electricity is kind of what sparks the gas to flame. Oh, uh, actually, never mind. You could use like oh, a it's just a spark. Yeah, you just use hey, a batch. Yeah, I don't know anything about cars, man. Don't ask me. Oh no, not the cars. I was talking about like cooking food. Oh, food. Yeah, mm. uh, we're screwed. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? What like, can't use my rice cooker. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, no rice. But yeah, Aaron, you were saying. What about I'll do a barbecue and I just use, like, those um fire pits and stuff you make? Yeah, mm. like the grill. Yeah. Use coal. We're just going back to the Philippines. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, reject, reject modernity, embrace monkey. I've just realized that it's actually the this is just the life of a lot of people elsewhere in the world. Yeah, because you know, I was about to say, right? Like here in Australia, like you need electricity for everything, right? So two mm. or three hours, like you're you're screwed. But if I went over to my uncle's place in the province, I all day, no electricity, right? Like stoves, they don't even have a stove. They have like a portable one, right? With a mm. gas canister. Right, that's it. Yeah. If you want to do your reading, do it in the day. If it's nighttime, light a candle. Like that's it. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of family, how does do your family tend to protect the environment, or from your observations of your community, what tends to happen to Ooh. either unconsciously or unconsciously or consciously? Do they do something that can be considered as eco-friendly? Oh, I notice Asians reuse their plastic bags really well, all the yeah. time. Yeah. Like whenever we get plastic bags, we keep them, we fold them up, we put them in uh, like this bin and we ever need, and whenever we need it, we just pull it out. Mm. So for bin linings and such. Even for plastics, like scrunchable plastics, mm-hmm. we put them in a plastic bag uh, separate to the recycling. And then we go to Coles and they have a plastic bag, this recycling bin. Uh-huh. So every time it fills, we just go there, drop it off. So even our plastics... I recycled after we use <laughs> Oh, I see. Yeah, but Aaron, do your, does your family do anything in particular? Good question. I'm still thinking of that. I'm not That's sure. all good. We tend to reuse like food as well. So if we, for example, had fried fish for dinner one night, the next night we would have the fried fish in like another dish. Mm. Or, you know, you use old rice that wasn't finished the day before to make fried rice later in the week. Oh, I see. And my mom even uses the bacon grease from like cooking bacon to mm. be put in the fried rice to make it taste. Oh, better. I see. So it's like a combination of foods that you reuse and then in a different and new way, which is like a great way of not 
wasting food. Yeah, my dad does the same thing. Like we have a jar just full of grease. Yeah. Yeah. What? It's unseemly. I know my yeah. mom. So when we have oil, like we use oil to fry something, she reuses that oil again and again for Ooh. dried fish because dried fish like has a really strong smell. Uh-huh. And so whenever you use the oil to fry that, you can't really use it for anything else except dried fish. Huh. So yeah, she just uses it maybe like four t- times and then yeah, it just keeps it in wow. a jar until it's no longer clean. Or That's usable. a chemical weapon. <laughs> she filters out any of like the flakes or stuff. Oh. So it's pr- practically looks like oil again once you put it back in the jar. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> what you learn growing up in like a developing yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, to, um, yeah they had it right they have it right yeah but did anything come to mind Aaron? yeah all i know is we just use leftover food to have the next day sometimes oh. yeah yeah we have lots of leftovers i still got the one from last night i cook that's pretty much it do you have to eat it for lunch or something the next day no i just eat it for dinner the next day mm. maybe a little bit of lunch Maybe brunch. Yeah, brunch? brunch is not a bad idea. I'll have a brunch. Huh. Yeah, for me, I don't have any like concept of, or I don't believe in any concept of like, this is a certain meal for breakfast, for lunch and dinner. Sometimes if I really liked what dinner was last night, I'd eat it for breakfast and then eat it for lunch. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's just like, as long as, you know, it doesn't go to waste, uh, I just, yeah, it's, it's a meal. It's, it sustains you. Food's food, huh? Precisely, yes. So be sure to turn off your lights for an hour from 8.30 to 9.30 on Saturday to share your, it's not allegiance, (laughs) share your support for saving our planet and the environment and let us know how it goes and how you went on our social media pages. We're Facebook forward slash Asian Pop Nation or on Twitter and Instagram at Asian Pop Nation. The song you just heard was Clear Up and Yuna's Break Down the Wall. And someone else who has been breaking down walls recently is Lalka, who has recently released her debut EP, The Way Music Looks, last Wednesday. It's full of sonic confidence, assurance, and strength, and we had the opportunity to chat with the mastermind behind the EP herself. So let's give it up for Lalka! Hi, Lalka. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I suppose... Just to start with, I wanted to ask, draw attention to your classical music background and your change to sort of electronic music. So I wanted to ask what kind of sparked that change and drew you to that side of music? Look, to put it bluntly, I was just really sick of that whole scene and I was just sick of performing the music of dead white men who I didn't relate to very much. I mean, these were like, you know, German men who'd been dead for like 200 years. So it just wasn't artistically fulfilling to be Mm. playing that. I also found the whole culture around classical music like super toxic. Just wasn't enjoying it really. So yeah, I decided to do something I enjoy instead. Mm. Do you feel that any of, I guess, the good aspects of classical music has made it into your upcoming EP? I don't know, to be honest. I mean, if you ask me about my creative process and, you know, all that, I guess, like, all my, I guess, artistic output is a product of all my influences and 
you know, I don't leave them in the back end. So mm-hmm. I, I suppose some of it might flow through, but not in a like deliberate way. It, mm. Definitely more subconscious than deliberate in any way. Of course, yes. And you've released a couple of singles before this EP, and I was wondering what sort of made you decide to take that next step to release an EP as opposed to a series of singles. I had this a bunch of songs that I felt really fit together cohesively and really told the story of the EP, which is the way uh, the way music looks, and I had uh, visual ideas for it. So it just made sense to put them all collectively because they have the same vein when it came to the energy, the stories, the looks I was curating for it. So it just made sense to to have it compiled as a unit rather than standalone singles that weren't connected. Yeah, and what would you say for those listening is the overarching theme that they can expect listening to your EP? I think just really self-assured energy. I really hope that when people listen to it, they are reminded about their own amazingness. They get that sense of energy from me. And I think those songs, like writing them has really helped me, you know, and and now that I've finished writing it and, you know, I haven't listened to them for a few months now and, and like now it's release time and I'm listening to them again and I'm like, wow, like the, the energy. And I'm just reminded about like just having that self-confidence, having, you know, belief in yourself. And I, I really hope that energy transmits to others and, and when they listen to it, they absorb that energy and feel good about themselves. And, you know, I remind it that they are strong and that, that they can achieve their dreams and, you know, not let anyone push them around and really break expectations, like surpass expectations. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. And you've had a hand pretty much throughout the entire creative process from songwriting, you know, producing and producing your own videos. And I think that's absolutely incredible. But when do you sort of know that this is the final product? Do you feel that it's reached sort of perfection or how do you find that a point where you're happy for the world to listen to it? Yeah, I guess like once I couldn't find anything else that I had to fix and and that was it. If you ask me in five years time, I'll probably find things that I'll change. But I guess that's just, that's pretty normal that artists, we grow and develop. So, like, I look at my work from, you know, even a year ago, I'd be like, oh, I'll probably change that, or, you know. But at the moment, I, like, when I finished EP, I was like, yep, I, I really can't think of anything else to change in it. And that was when I knew, all right, it's done, send it off. <laughs> and talking about sort of reflecting on your old music, what do you think were some of the lessons from that that you've now taken on into this EP? I think just having more confidence in my own ability and also, like, just maybe like definitely always push myself like you know like I really push myself to create music and songs that were really that I was happy with the quality and um to never compromise on that so I definitely approach this EP this way and your EP is an absolutely powerful and expressive product and I deals with a lot of the challenges of like finding oneself as you mentioned and being self-assured about your own identity and what do you think it is about music that sort of allowed you to express part of yourself that maybe you don't get to every day yeah I guess you know it's it's different for different people and for me it just happens to be music I'm followed by fashion so hence why you know the lead single Atomic Blonde says I like the way music looks I like the way fashion sounds because I feel like those two mediums are the best mediums of which I express myself like 
I don't consider myself, you know, extremely extroverted. And it's hard for me to hold conversations with people because I'm incredibly introverted and shy. But having music as a medium to express my thoughts and then having fashion as another medium to express my inner feelings visually, I I find myself most comfortable expressing myself in those two mediums. And again, it's different for everyone. It's just that I've discovered that these two mediums are what I feel comfortable with. So I've chosen to, I guess, tell my story to the world in in this way. Mm, Absolutely. And I wanted to sort of look at the title of your EP. It comes from that that line you mentioned earlier. What was it about that line that sort of drew you to making it the title of your EP? And what was it about sort of switching up music with looks as opposed to music and sounds and vice versa? Yeah, I think... No, I can't find this quote, but if my memory serves me correctly, something about Malcolm McLaren, he was uh, Vivian Westwood's partner for many years and the manager of the Sex Pistols, and he had said that, you know, like part of the success of the Sex Pistols was the fashion sense and how fashion played such a huge part in punk. And then so, you know, I, was, I think I was probably reading, I might have been reading Vivian Westwood's biography. I don't know, I can't remember where I found, like he said this. But I was like, oh my God, absolutely true. And then that's when I just realized, like, I love the way music looks because in my mind, music looks a certain way. You know, different songs look a certain way. And fashion, you know, has its own aesthetic. I mean, like, if you talk about punk fashion, you know, it's like visually you would, and, and like sonically you would think of punk bands like the Sex Pistols and et cetera. And then if you think about disco you would imagine like certain types of clothes and and i feel like those two art forms are so interconnected that and i because those two art forms are mediums of which i express myself i'll say this is the perfect title for my debut ep because it it's true to who i am how did you know that each song would have that unique sort of fashion look to each one and how can you tell that's what would best represent that song it's all in my head like, like i said like in my head, like, music looks a certain way. So, like, you know, when I finish the songs, I'll be like, this looks this way. Like, it has to have these colours. And it's just in all in my head, really. I can't really explain it. Um, so then I just go, okay, that's in my head, and I've just got to figure out how to visually make it, which take a leg. Yeah, absolutely. And as the show that we're a part of here at Sin sort of focuses on Asian pop culture and music, how do you heavily do you feel being a person of color and of your background, your cultural background? How much of it do you think influences the music you make, and in what way? I think definitely influences, especially lyrically, and because like the lyrics are about my you know personal experiences, so that definitely comes into play with my personal experiences. I think like for example, Angel Jezebel. Like if we're talking about music, there's a motif in there which is. I sample the Chinese instrument and use like like Oriental scales in it because of my background being Chinese. And then you know I was to talk about the song Angel Jezebel, for example, is about breaking stereotypes as an Asian woman. People tend to put Asian women in this box or, or see them as just one dimensional. Like you're either the tiger mom or you're like the sweet docile woman and. I wanted to write about the duality that we can both be fragile and vulnerable and also incredibly fierce and strong. It's it's not one or the other. I think, like, I get tired of 
people who, I guess, stereotype others without nuance. Like, I think life is so full of nuance, and hopefully I get to speak a little bit about that. I think there's, there's so much more to explore here. But it's a start. It's a little glimpse of my comments about being an Asian woman. So hence, I'm an angel. I'm a Jezebel. It's, you know, I'm both. And that's just who I am. Yeah, exactly. And at the time of this interview, you've got your live stream performance coming up. What are you sort of most excited about kind of trying this new medium where it's both live and virtual? Yeah, so, I mean, when the pandemic first hit, I felt like everyone was jumping on the live streaming thing and kind of just doing it for the sake of it and I held back on it because for me I absolutely love performing live but because of my music I, I didn't feel like my music could be truly represented if I just you know played an acoustic guitar alone in my bedroom like so I really waited and then thought of how I could present it in a way that you know, kept everyone safe, kept myself safe, kept my crew safe. But I'm really excited to show people, I guess, like me performing it and that they can see the expression and the emotion behind the songs as I perform it because I am a very expressive performer. So that these songs, even though they're electronic music, like, I mean, there's so much soul and heart in them as well. And on top of that, like, I've made... Uh, virtual visuals to be immersive with the you know actual real-time footage of me performing so it, it adds another dimension I guess um, into live performance that that we, we can't normally see those virtual visuals if we went to say a you know regular live gig in person because you know we're not we're not at the stage yet where we're walking around wearing like VR goggles we're not being you know a live stream I, I want it to be real so I want it to mix you know, like, it's definitely me playing completely live. It's not pre-recorded, so, like, anything could go wrong. But there's also those virtual elements because, like, that's completely the world that we live in now. And I honestly, like, I, I, you know, like, face filters. I, I just can't imagine us taking a selfie without a face filter. And I, I just wanted that to be a, a reflection of a snapshot of, like, the here and the now of this is what's happening right now. And I, I sort of feel like that. I, I want to present my work that way. Yeah. No, that's definitely a unique way about going about it, and I think it's going to be exciting to see. But I guess now looking to the future, what sort of direction do you see yourself going now? Do you see yourself trying anything new or trying to share maybe a different sort of story or side to yourself in your music? I guess I can't give too much away because I've already started working on my next volume of work. But I, all I can say is like I'm definitely going to push myself more from a creative perspective I have ideas it's just I've just got to figure out a way of executing the ideas that are in my head so I've still got to figure that out Um, but I just want to constantly push myself beyond what I've already achieved artistically Um, so yeah definitely working towards that so stay tuned for that yeah exciting to hear and I know you touched on this a bit earlier about music hopefully being able to impact people so that they're more expressive or more tuned to who they are. Is there any other ways you hope your music sort of touches people's hearts? I hope it makes them feel happy as well. Like the the songs are so energetic that I hope it, it picks them up, you know. It, mm. Even if it's that serotonin, 
I really hope it, it gives some serotonin. It's definitely feel-good music. It's not music you would cry to. It's joyous. It's And, you know, I feel like the world needs a bit more of that now. Mm, yeah, precisely. And my last question is, where can our listeners find you if they want to know more about your music and follow you on social media? Yeah, I'm really active on my Instagram. Like I said, you know, early like fashion is such a huge part of my personality. So it makes sense that visually I'm quite active on a visual platform like Instagram. Um, they can find me on Bandcamp where I'm selling tickets to my live show as well as all the streaming platforms. So Spotify, YouTube has all the visuals for my work. So again, being such a visual artist, I yeah, YouTube's where people can go to find my work. But if they're just streaming on their headphones, Spotify, Apple Music, all the streaming platforms is where you can find me. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Arthur, for speaking with us. That's okay, Tini. Thanks so much for having me. The last song you just heard was Gemini's Trip featuring Jay Park. And leading on from that to a trip across the four nations, fire, water, air and earth, we have an exciting discussion ahead for you. So let's hear it here on Asian Pop Nation. Do you guys remember the show called Avatar The Last Ambedo? Well, apparently in February of 2021, Nickelodeon has announced that the creators of Avatar The Last Ambedo and Legend of Korran will be starting a new studio called Avatar Studios. The studio is designed to create a new content, including animated series and films set in the Avatar universe with production of animated theatrical films that will be starting soon. Just a question, is this a good decision from Nickelodeon's part? And if so, how would you like the studio to expand into the world of Avatar? I don't know this answer, so I'm just going to have a guess. <laughs> but you, you've seen the series, right, Aaron? I've seen the live-action movie still. Oh, that's right. <laughs> oh, goodness. That's not any way to live, Aaron. i think Koran, so that counts. Yeah, sure. Do you feel like there's anything that you would want to see develop from Korra? Probably more of the spirit world, to be honest. Mm. Is that more like what it's like or how the spirit world works? Uh, both, really. Ah, okay. No, that would be an interesting insight. I think it'd be cool as like a short series or like a bonus content. But how about you, JP? I know you haven't seen all of it, but your sister has watched some. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it more like sporadic or is she going through it episode by episode? I think she kind of dropped it. Wow. Yeah. How do you drop Avatar? I don't know. I mean, that's how kids are, right? Like, they, yeah, no, I agree. That's how I am now, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, okay, whether or not this is a good idea on Nickelodeon's part, do we know how it was formed? Like, was it on the staff's volition, like the people who made Avatar, were they like... I feel like they wouldn't be a part of it if they didn't believe in it. I think there was issues. I believe Netflix is making a live action again. Of- again. Avatar. I think it's this time a series, not a film. Okay, that's a little more worrying. And the key staff from the original actually left. So I don't think we have high hopes for this one as Avatar fans. Uh But I feel like if the creators are behind this Avatar Studios, then they hopefully with Nickelodeon's more generous support compared to Korra, they'd be able to create more content that really delves into what fans love about Avatar. Yeah. Well, so if that's the case, good. then, yeah, it's good that they're making their own offshoot studio. Gives them a little more freedom. How would I like the studio to expand on the world, though? I'm not sure. I haven't watched enough to know what I want to expand. But, like, I, when it, I think it would be nice to have, like, a nice slice-of-life show of just some peasant girl living her day-to-day life, and it's just comedy. 
there was a nice episode actually in the series where there all of the primary characters were in one of the Earth Kingdom cities. Mm. And it was just an episode uh, split into sections where it follows one of the characters for a short while oh. within the story. And they go on like a small adventure or, you know, like one character goes on their first date or oh. one tra- character is traveling through a market or yeah. something like that. So it's cute because it's not this way we usually experience Avatar world where it's like the world is going to end if we do not learn these skills and fighting bad guys <laughs> so it's almost like oh you know i'm gonna help this poor guy who is crying on the street and it's yeah something yeah <laughs> I, I love it yeah i love it when they do that right mm. yeah like going into those side stories because i think that's um it's more accurate in terms of how people actually live their lives out. Yeah, in, in these stories, it's only like the one or two or three or four heroes that go out to do the crazy stuff. But everyone else is, they're just living life, you know? Mm. Yeah. There was sometimes some nice reoccurring minor characters. Mm. Like there was this couple who had, uh, where the woman was pregnant. And we see her again later in the series as well. So it's like, yeah, small moments where they, they meet again across paths or they have a significance on that character's life or mm. view of the world. But I'm a sucker for knowing more about what happens after. So I think what mm. I'd love is for, I know Avatar already has a comic kind of, a comic book released for what happens Pretty much, yeah. after. But I think it'd be cool if they sort of adapt it for animation, but maybe change a few things that the fans weren't too happy about. Um, mm. Because I know there was a few qualms with what Aang calls Katara in this comic. It's more, it's just like sweetie, but I think it's, just, it's just so <laughs> oh, generic. No, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, what kind of, like, how old are they? 12? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. That's pretty, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be nice to see how it developed because the romance really just cut short, I think. I see, yeah. And we didn't really see Katara's. You know what would be cool? It was like Katara's oh. perspective of the series mm, and her sort of development for her feelings with Aang. And then that way, I don't think we'd have those Katara Aang and Zutara Wars. I don't think. Mm. Question, it's a comic book, it's a sequel to the TV show, right? They're like stories that develop on things that weren't really answered in this series. Like, for example, Zuko's mom. Like, she's not dead, but there's this complex story as to how they find her again and yeah reunite Zuko and his mother I'd love to know more about also um oh my gosh her name's totally slipped my mind Zuko's sister oh the crazy lady yeah the crazy one does she come back in Legend of Korra at all if memory serves right I don't think she is in the sequel no oh see I would love to know what happened to her because she just went insane and like lost everything so knowing what happens to her did she just like disappear from the story after going insane no she was defeated and then kind of captured oh so she was the most powerful (laughs) all right i see i think i mentioned her one point in the flashbacks uh but i don't remember like in what way she was mentioned or what they said about her pretty much yeah i could be wrong but there's one character i'm actually want to know more about it's the watermelon man was it the cabbage Yes, him, yes, the cabbage guy. <laughs> yeah, that would be a cool backstory or even like, where is he now? Is he Has he finally found a place where his cabbages aren't destroyed? Mm. 
unless Avatar Studios release something soon, and I wonder what film they have in the works, or if they'll actually revisit Avatar The Last Airbender again. I was kind of disappointed that Legend of Korra didn't really follow maybe their lives during in their <laughs> middle to late lives, you know, like what they're doing as adults. But maybe this film or maybe their upcoming content will. But I guess that's it from us. So let us know about your thoughts on Avatar Studios on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can easily find us by just searching up Asian Pop Nation. Thanks, everyone. Yatta. Yeah, Yanimashita. And you've reached the end of tonight's show. Thanks so much for listening to Asian Pop Nation here on Sin. If you miss any of our discussions or interviews, or maybe you really want to go back to listen to them again, you can stream and download our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you name it, you'll find us there. You can also find our playlist on sin.org.au and at facebook.com forward slash Asian Pop Nation. Or you can also find us on Twitter or Instagram at Asian Pop Nation. Thanks again for listening. This is Senya on behalf of the APN team signing off. Thank you.